Good morning. Good morning. I am singing those songs to my own soul this morning. It's who you are. It's who you'll always be. I'm not sure what your week was like, but mine was, mine was pretty crazy. And even though we're beginning another week, it's, today's going to be pretty crazy too. Um, but coming to church, singing these songs, sitting under the authority of God's word, it has this wonderful way of refocusing our eyes on who is in control and what is important and where our hope is. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We are actually sort of in the middle uh, or com- coming soon to the end of uh, the series we have going on right now, which is called The Value of Vision, where we've been looking at the vision of Convergent Church. What are we here to do? What is something that we're running after? We've been looking at the mission of Convergent Church to connect people to Christ, kingdom, and community. That's sort of how we go about making that vision happen. And now we're in the values portion of this series where we really are asking the question, what kind of people do we want to be? And our text this week is is actually really special. It has this natural division that really helps us see a couple things, really the ways in which Christians directly and indirectly affect the world. Today we'll be considering, among other things, our value of gospel conversation and how our speaking about Jesus and and also living for Jesus affects the world around us and pushes the mission of Christ forward in the city of Wasso and the greater world. And I pray that by the end of the sermon, you would just take this, this one thing home. This is, this is the big overarching thought. I want you to see how prayer affects personal evangelism and gospel conversations. I want you to see those two things. And so here at Convergent Church, this is how we explain our value of gospel conversation. We say this, because people are saved by hearing and believing the truth of the gospel, we must be intentional about speaking its truth, power, and blessing into our community and the individuals within our spheres. So the text we'll be reading today, uh, it's written by Paul. If you guys have a chance, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Colossians 4. We're going to be considering uh, verses 2 through 6 today, and we'll get there in a moment, but you can go ahead and turn there. But the text we're going to be reading today was, was written by Paul to the Colossian church. Now, this church was founded by Paul when he was ministering in the city of Ephesus. He had a three-year stay there um, in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Colossae, uh, by the name of the man Epaphras. So as, as um, Paul was working in the city of Ephesus, he spoke to a man from Colossae, his name was Epaphras, and he told him about the gospel, and Epaphras responded in faith to Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Epaphras eventually returned home to the city of Colossae and began sharing the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection with the people in his city, And eventually, the church of Colossae was born through this conversation, through this gospel conversation between Paul and Epaphras. We might say that Paul and Epaphras were two of the founding members of the church in Colossae. But before we read our text, let's have a little bit of context. Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church as he's under house arrest in the city of Rome. And he's put there for speaking the very same gospel that sparked the founding of the Colossian church. 
And along with him in Rome is his son in the faith, Timothy. Most of you know him. Epaphras is also there at this point who sort of sparked the, the, the Colossian church being born there. And his friend Aristarchus. And all these men are champions of the faith. They are called to share the gospel with the people in their lives. And as we read today, Paul instructs us in Colossians, um, I really want to focus on this overlooked aspect of gospel conversations. Like so often, even I as a pastor will tell you, tell people about Jesus, right? Go and tell people how awesome Jesus is. But I think one of the things that's missing behind the driving force of being able to actually talk to some people about Jesus is prayer and the power of God in our lives to give us the boldness and the ability to speak clearly about Jesus. And so that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. So here's our first point. Our first point is our involvement in gospel conversations through prayer. And Paul is gonna give us really the who, what, where, when, and why of praying about talking to people. I know, we're going back. This is like the prequel, right? But praying about talking about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles open, read with me in Colossians 4, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul's desire is that God would open the door for the gospel to pour into the city of Rome in the same way that he had in the city of Colossae. But Paul asks for something first. There's something vital that Paul brings up, and that thing is prayer. And so I'd like to start with just considering what is prayer. You know, I think so often we see prayer as a means of God accomplishing the things that we want. We see it as a means of God answering our personal desires. And I think I'm guilty of this too. Often when I pray, I'll pray things like, Lord, help me to shepherd these people. Lord, help me to talk about Jesus. Lord, help me not to screw up this sermon. Um, just like so many different things, right? Lord, help me to be a good husband. Help me to be a good father. All these things are good. And I think we should pray about these. But we often speak to God, I think, from the wrong place a place where we desire God to serve our needs, both, both ill and good. But Paul seems to see prayer as something very different. In Paul's mind, prayer is really the means through which the gospel takes root in the world. Jesus taught us to pray like this in the Lord's Prayer. He started this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The primary motivation of our prayers, why we reach out to God and plead for divine assistance in this life is ultimately so that God's name would be prized and praised. And that's, I miss that all the time. That's what Jesus means when he says, I want your name, Lord, to be hallowed. It's also very closely connected to the word consecrated, which means set apart. And so Jesus starts his prayer with this thought, Lord, I want your name to be set apart in the world. I want your name to be special. I want your name to be valued. I want your name to be glorified. And I'm beginning from this place. He begins from this place so that people would see Jesus. 
so that they would see God and that, that God's kingdom would come so that his mission would move forward in the world and ultimately so that his will would be done as his kingdom expands. That's why Jesus prays that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus starts this model prayer off with this way to show us what the heart of prayer should be. And ultimately, the heart of prayer should be revealing God's glory in the world. But so often I pray in a way that says, Lord, satiate my needs and my desires and my comforts. We all do this. I think if we were going to define prayer, I would define it this way. The spiritual pleading of God's children to their sovereign heavenly father that he would glorify himself by building his kingdom through them. That's what prayer is in everything. So we say, Lord, in my parenting, I need help. Glorify yourself in this. Lord, in my marriage, I need help. Glorify yourself even in my deficiencies. In my pastoring, Lord, I need your help. I desire to do this well, but glorify yourself even in my failures. Lord, at my job, glorify yourself even when I'm not a model employee. In all things, in life and in death, glorify yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. Paul understands that the kingdom of God cannot move forward. It won't move forward without God's divine intervention. Not in his life and not in the life of the Colossians. And so he calls for prayer. And he does so in three very specific ways. If you're a note taker, this is a note taking sermon. Three very specific ways. So let's ask the question, how do we pray? First, Paul tells us that we are to pray with endurance. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. On Monday morning, uh, Chelsea and I woke up to kind of start our week, and we started off with a, a bit of a frustrating situation. Um, our rendezvous car battery was, was dead. It died overnight, and she couldn't drive it to work. We were hastily trying to get out the door. She was like seven minutes before she needed to be there. There wasn't enough time to jump it. And I thought about it, you know, the, the, the car battery likely died for two reasons. Number one, because it was just cold. It was incredibly frigid out that week. It was like almost below zero temperatures at night. And then also, we just hadn't really driven the car that week at all. It kind of sat and it got cold and the battery lost power. And I started to think, you know, if I'd only driven that car more this last week, if I hadn't just let it sit there, it probably wouldn't have lost the power of its battery. You know, and if I parked it in the garage where it was warm instead of outside where it was cold, I probably wouldn't have run into this problem. And most of you who know at least a little bit about cars know that every car has an alternator, right? And the alternator is in charge of what? Charging the battery, right? But the alternator only works as the car is in use, right? It's, it's, it's not like a cell phone or a laptop that we set down and plug into a charger and walk away. It only charges the battery as it's being used. You see, prayer is much like the alternator of the Christian life. It doesn't get power as we set it down, but it gains power as we pick it up. It gains power as it's active and it charges the spiritual life as the Christian as we participate in it. And what happens when we set aside prayer, our spiritual life loses power. But when we pick it up, God floods our life with his presence and his warmth and his power to do his will. You know, a friend of mine, Chris Peoples, wrote on social media this week, he said this. I thought this was a very profound statement. He said this, public actions that glorify God require private actions that depend on God. 
Public actions that glorify God require private actions that depend on God. If we're not ultimately cultivating prayer lives that say, Lord, I need you, I need your power, I want you to be glorified, I want to know you, I don't just want to do for you, but I want to know who you are, it's no wonder that we often lack the boldness to witness about God's power and presence in our lives and in the lives of others because we're not active in it. And Paul knows this. And thus he calls for steadfastness and endurance. He says, don't stop praying. Continue praying. Don't let it go. Don't let it get lax, but continue reaching out to God. But he also says that there's a second way that we are to pray. He says that we are to pray with watchfulness. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. You know, in the most trying moment of his life, as Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, he asked his closest friends to stay awake and pray with him. And they didn't. They all fell asleep. In Jesus' most important moment, as he's asking for them to be watchful and vigilant in prayer and watch over me. And so I don't think it's any surprise that in Jesus's persecution and crucifixion, all of the disciples deserted him. In his moment of greatest pain, when they were to be watchful and pray, they all fell away. You see, the enemy Satan knows the power of prayer. He understands the power of prayer. And he knows, ultimately, that most of us in the church, myself included, don't prize and value prayer as much as we should. You see, Satan does not fear Christians. I want you to hear this. Satan does not fear Christians at all. For in and of ourselves, we have no power to do anything. Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he said, and Satan knows this. And so one of his main tactics is to lull us to sleep with the things of the world. He wants us distracted. He will attempt to flood our lives with stuff. You know, sometimes it's bad stuff, like too much TV and too much YouTube and too much video games and too much junk food and too much hobbies. Like, I'm, I'm guilty of all of that. But you know, other times it's, it's good things. It's business meetings. It's working on our company. It's school events and project deadlines and children's homework and household chores and serving our spouses, all good and essential things that we must do that should never take a backseat to prayer. All important things that we must do that should never take a backseat to prayer. His desire, Satan's desire is the power and the presence of God would be absent from our lives and instead that our lives would be full of lesser things that he doesn't fear. The last thing that Satan wants for us is that our lives would be full of knowing and experiencing and enjoying Christ because it's Christ that makes Satan tremble, not us. It is Christ that makes Satan tremble and not us. And so I beg you, be watchful, for his schemes and stay awake with Jesus. Paul has a third thing that he wants us to, to lay hold of. So he says, pray with endurance. Be watchful, don't fall asleep. But he also wants us to pray with thankfulness. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
You know, I think Paul prescribes thankfulness to our steadfast and watchful prayers, lest we begin to believe that the advancement of God's kingdom falls squarely on our shoulders. Like, so we don't begin to believe that, yes, if I'm enduring in my prayer, and yes, if I'm watchful in my prayer, it's, it's me doing the work. It's my prayer that's, that's working. And while we do have a part to play in, in, the, in the moving forward of God's kingdom, the primary power behind gospel movement, the primary power behind prayer is not my persistence or my endurance or my watchfulness. It's God's willingness to glorify himself through answering my prayers. That's where the power comes from. God's willingness to glorify himself, to hollow his name through answering my feeble prayers. And so we pray thankfully as a way of acknowledging that the power comes from God as a way to acknowledge that all decisive victories over the enemy have been won. I mean, think about it. Jesus defeated the enemy in the wilderness. He defeated the enemy in the garden. He defeated the enemy on the cross. He defeated the enemy on the empty tomb. He defeated the enemy as he ascended to heaven and he will ultimately crush Satan completely when he returns for his bride. Every decisive victory in the Christian life has already been won. Jesus has never lost. And so we pray with thankfulness. If we desire to see gospel change in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we must pray with thankful hearts and with open eyes, firmly focused not on our victory, not on what we've done, but what Christ has done and allow that to empower our prayers. See, we don't operate from a viewpoint of defeat, but we operate from a viewpoint of assured victory in Jesus. And so we pray things like, Lord, I know you have the victory over the sin in my life. Help me to be steadfast. Lord, I know that you have called those out of the world who will come into your kingdom. And so, Lord, help me. Give me the boldness, the very same boldness that you had to speak the gospel. I know that the fields are white with harvests. Lord, help me to go. Thank you for the harvest that you have. This is how we pray with endurance, with watchfulness, and with thanksgiving. But you know, Paul, being the the ever consummate teacher that he is, he doesn't want us to just know how to pray, but he also wants us to see who we pray for. So let's ask that question, who do we pray for? Well, Paul tells us that we are to pray for the called. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. So as you're praying to know God and for joy in Christ and for God's power to flood your life so that you would be able to tell people about Jesus, he says, pray also for us. He's talking about himself and Timothy and Epaphras and Aristarchus, these these men who are called to share the gospel. He says, pray for us. Now, every Christian is called to prayer. Every Christian is called also to share the gospel in various ways with the people around them. Some are, however, called to daily spiritual battles against the power of darkness in a very active and visible way. Christians must not pray only for themselves, but for those who are called to the front lines 
of ministry. And I don't, I don't want to offend anyone and I don't want to give the idea that there's certain positions that are better. They're not better. There's some that are just harder. There's some that are just harder. I don't want to seek to offend, but there's a big difference between sharing the gospel with my three-year-old child and a missionary sharing the gospel with a hostile indigenous people in a different country. That's, there's a huge difference there. There's a difference between me considering sharing the gospel with my coworker and a pastor attempting to equip an entire church to go share the gospel with their city. Like, think about that. Satan looks at one of those things and he says, well, he's just sharing the gospel with his coworker, whatever. But when a pastor says, I want to equip you to share the glorious gospel with everyone in the city, Satan goes, no, <laughs> not that guy. We're going to get that guy. They're all important and vital calls, but some simply draw the ire and the wrath of Satan more than others. Those who have the task of preaching and proclaiming and witnessing and, and displaying the gospel are under increased spiritual attack, and they just simply need more prayer. They need more intercession. And so as a pastor of this church, I'm just asking, pray for me. Pray for Dan. Pray for our wives. Pray for our children. Pray for missionaries that you know across the world in the daily fight of sharing the gospel who don't know what tomorrow will look like. Because if Satan can cripple a leader, he can cripple a movement. And that's who he goes for. There's nothing that divides a church more than a moral failure of a pastor. There's nothing that divides a church more than the discouragement of a pastor to no longer be with people. And I've seen it so many times. It's so pray. Pray for these people who are called. Those who give their time to gospel witness need your prayers. And so we pray with endurance. We pray with watchfulness. We pray with thanksgiving. We pray for the called. But Paul goes even a step further, and he tells us what to pray for. He says, pray for open doors. He says, pray also that God may open to us a door for the world. Paul writes this letter from house arrest, prison, in a home in Rome, and he prays for open doors, that the gospel might roll out from those doors, from Paul and from Epaphras and from Aristarchus and from Timothy, and he prays that it would, it would be like a tidal wave that comes and envelops Rome as it had started to do in Colossae. Paul has seen time and time and time again that God can do in five seconds what Paul could labor for five years to accomplish. God can make it happen. And so Paul says, pray that God would open the doors. He's confident that just like you and I walk through these doors this morning, God can open a door for the gospel. He can open ears. He can open eyes. He can open hearts. He can open minds in a way that you and I never could. And so he says, pray for people to receive the gospel. So we must pray for opportunities to share the gospel and that God would open ears and hearts and minds to receive it. Paul said this in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. He said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul is saying, we need to go. They need to hear 
They need to believe. We need the power to speak. But it doesn't matter unless God does it. It doesn't matter. Paul knows that though he's been sent to share the gospel, without open doors, Paul can do nothing. So he calls on the Colossian church to plead with God to open doors for effective ministry and gospel conversation. And so you might ask yourself, okay, all right, Pastor Jameson, I get it. You want me to pray. You're beating me over the head with it. You want me to be steadfast. You want me to be watchful. You want me to be thankful. I get it. I need to pray for myself. I need to pray for pastors. I need to pray for missionaries. I need to pray for their wives and their children. Okay, but why? Why do I need to do this? What is my prayer going to accomplish? And I love it. Paul gives even this answer to us. Look what Paul wants them to pray. He says, pray also that God may open to us a door for the word to what? Declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, pray this way, pray for open doors so that the mystery of the gospel would be made clear to those who don't understand it. He said, that's what prayer does. That's his whole overarching goal in all of this. He says, I want people to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and that the mystery of the gospel might be clear for everyone to see. Paul wants to make clear the mystery. He wants to make clear what for many is shrouded in spiritual blindness. You see the thing, the gospel's not confusing or unclear because it doesn't make sense. It's not unclear because it's hard to understand. It's a mystery because no one would know the gospel unless God himself revealed the gospel. No one would know. From Genesis to Revelation, bit by bit, God has been revealing this plan of redemption that we call the gospel, but it's revealed fully in the face of Jesus and what Jesus came to do, that God would glorify himself by sending his only son, the second person of the Trinity. A portion of the Godhead would come and become man, that he would live a perfect sinless life that he would die on the cross to release God's children from the curse of God's wrath, that he would rise again from the dead after three days and that he would ascend to reign in heaven and that he would justify sinners through faith, that he would unite once broken people together under the banner of his redemption. And more than that, that he would seal us together eternally with the power of his Holy Spirit until the day that he comes to reign on earth. That's what Paul wants to see. That's what empowers gospel conversation, praying in a way that says, God, I want you to be glorified in this world. Jesus, I want people to see clearly the mystery of who you are. Holy Spirit, I want you to come and I want you to fill the church with your presence and I want you to move and I want you to make Jesus known. I want you to make the gospel clear for my city. That's what Paul is shooting for. And so I ask you all, pray that this would happen. Pray that, that God's glorious gospel would be made clear in the world. And that we would work and live and labor and pray that it would be made clear in Owasso. And so pray like heaven that God's kingdom would come. And that the mystery of Jesus would be revealed. That's not all. 
you're like, you're not done yet? <laughs> That's not all. That's not all that Paul asks the Colossians or instructs the Colossians. It's not all that he requires. You know, it's a very indirect way of moving the kingdom forward, going into your prayer closet in quiet and on bended knee, begging your father to make himself known. That's very indirect, but, but Paul also wants to show us a direct way that we can be involved in gospel conversation about how we live our lives and how we use our words. And so our second point for the day is our direct involvement through wisdom and speech. Read uh, verses five and six with me. Colossians four, five through six says this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And Paul uses a very convicting and I think exhilarating statement here. He says, making the best use of the time. Now that term there is, is actually a merchant's term that they would have used in the markets of Paul's day. And it literally meant to buy the entire stock of something. That's what it meant. It meant to go to the market and buy all the apples. <laughs> go to the market and buy all the dates. Go to the market and buy all the gold. Buy it up. It meant to buy it out completely, purchase it completely. And so Paul is asking us to use our time here on earth as a currency to buy up every opportunity we can to participate in gospel conversations. That's what he's saying. You know, time is one thing that we can't get more of. I tell this to my kids at work all the time that I work with. When I see them wasting their lives and wasting their time and they're just not moving forward and I say, you know, today is gonna go by no matter what. You're never gonna get it back. So what are you gonna do with today? What are you gonna do? We can't produce more of it. We can't get more of it. Each moment is a moment that will never be replaced or repeated again. And God gives us the opportunity to choose how we're going to use it. Will we use it for God's glory or not? And I think this outlook provides a very challenging but also a thrilling adventure to everyday Christian life because it helps me to know that God wants to use every moment of my life to further his glory on the earth. It means that every moment matters as insignificant and as feeble and as deficient as we may seem, as weak as we may be at times, God has a plan for every moment. Some of the greatest testimonies that you will ever hear in the Christian life are not from the strong, they're not from the articulate, they're from the broken. They're from the broken. They're from people like Corey Ten Boom, right? They're from blind missionaries and crippled people who went out into the world and are living in weakness. But God says, I have plans for that moment too. Paul, he wants us to know that moving the kingdom forward in gospel conversation is not just for talented people, that we can use our testimonies as a witness to show people who God is and the truth of the gospel. Hear me, Conversion Church, it's, it's not gonna be your talents that are gonna win people to the gospel. It's not. It's gonna be your transparency and your weakness. When people see that Jesus loves the mundane, that Jesus doesn't love the, the flashy, but Jesus loves the broken and the repentant and those who are humble, gospel conversation will flow.
But even in light of that, Paul gives us three, three more specific ways that we can make the most of our lives and buy up the whole stock of time for gospel conversation. The first one is this, by simply being wise. By being wise. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And wisdom, in this sense, in this text, really means knowing how to read the room. Like right now I'm reading the room and some of you are like, man, when is this sermon done? (laughs) But it means to know who you're talking to and how to best share the gospel clearly with them. It's about being thoughtful in what you say and how you act towards unbelievers. Some might call it tact. Just be tactful. You know, I see so many people puffed up by by head knowledge and, and articulation and then they speak the truth. There's nothing wrong with their version of the gospel. It's the true gospel. But they turn people away because of the tone in which they speak and the way in which they carry themselves, not the truth of their words. Wisdom is knowing how to contextualize the gospel to a specific person or people group without compromising the fidelity of the gospel. That's what Paul wants us to do. He says, be wise, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And he has a second way. He says that we buy up the time by seasoning our speech. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, there is a way, all right, think about this. I want you to think in your mind's eye, your favorite preacher. Everyone's envisioning me. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> your favorite preacher, like that person where you're like, man, I, I, I need to be filled. I need to, I need to hear God's word. I need to be stimulated. I need to be stirred. I need to remember Jesus. I need someone to convict my soul. Think of that person as I say this, okay? There is a way to speak about Jesus that makes the hungry heart growl and the thirsty soul pant for Jesus. There is a way. Paul is not speaking about making the gospel appetizing to every person. He's not talking about compromising the gospel. That's how you get multiple gospels that are not gospels at all when you try to make a gospel that everyone's happy with that never works. But he's speaking about a way that awakens the hunger in unbelievers that they never knew they had. That's what he's talking about. And he's talking about speech that is seasoned with grace. Speech that is seasoned with grace. You see, an otherwise delicious meal would be ruined if it's not prepared correctly. Like anybody ever ruined a meal? Yeah? Trust me, I spent a lot of time trying to make some really cool stuff. And then my wife and kids eat it and they're like, you went wrong somewhere on the path. I don't know where it was. Maybe it was three hours ago, maybe it was three minutes ago, but something, something went wrong. But you know, an appetizing meal will be ruined if you don't prepare it correctly. Now, I'm going to poke fun on a beloved brother because I know he can handle it. But um, I remember the time that David, who is just, guys, he's an absolute, he's a treasure to me. I could, I could almost cry just thinking about him. But I remember the time that uh, David always bakes uh, freshly baked chocolate chip cookies for men's group. Every time we met, he would bring freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. But, but one day, um, he must have been in a, a tizzy or a little bit of a hurry, because instead of putting uh, sugar in the cookies, he grabbed salt, right? Yeah. Now, thankfully, David is wise enough to taste his cooking before he gives it to other people. 
or else we would have been in a really unpleasant situation. But it was the only time that David showed up without freshly made cookies. He had store-bought cookies and we're like, what happened? Are you okay? Like, what's going on, right? And so we asked the question, how can I develop my ability to speak about Christ so that there's an appetizing flavor to it? How can I assure that grace is a fundamental ingredient when I speak to unbelievers? How can I learn to speak about Christ in a way that awakens the latent hunger for God and other people? You know, I think sometimes we talk about Christ like a chef who doesn't taste his own cooking. We want to serve up this meal for others to enjoy, but we don't understand that the thing that makes the gospel so unique, the thing that makes the gospel the gospel, the essential seasoning of the gospel, it's missing, and that's grace. That's what makes the gospel the gospel. No other religion has grace. We have grace. We have God's unmerited favor, not through works, but through faith in Jesus. No other religion has that. Every other religion, you must work your way into God's good favor. Christianity is the only religion where God works, dies on the cross so that he can give you favor he doesn't deserve. That's what makes Christianity Christianity. It's grace, and it's often missing when we talk to people who do not know Jesus. And I think, honestly, the best way to instill grace into your speech is by daily tasting the gospel for yourself. That's what it is. It's daily going back to what God has done for you. Daily remembering Christ's sacrifice, Christ's love, Christ's willingness, Christ's redemption for you when you were yet sinners and enemies of God. It's praying and thanking God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your favor towards a sinful and prideful and selfish and unkind person like me. It's remembering why Jesus and the gospel are so appetizing to you and so extending grace. Man, guys, I, I, I wasn't gonna go here, but I'm gonna go here. It's not bad, but I'm just taking up more time. I know that, and now I'm taking up more time by talking. So, um, <laughs> In the book of John, there is, there is a scene that changed my life absolutely changed my life and the way I talk with other people and the way I, 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 I operate with other people. A leper comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus if he will heal him. And he says, Jesus, if you're willing, will you heal me? And Jesus says, I'm willing. Now this is Jesus, perfectly holy, not a spot, not a stain, not inside, not out. This is a leper, diseased, broken, outcast from society. Nobody wants this person. And Jesus looks at him and says, I'm willing. And he touches this man. He touches this broken and dirty and outcast man. And every single time I read that verse, it's in my daily, uh, my yearly reading. Every single time I come to that verse, I weep because I realize that that leper is me. And Jesus, though holy, not needing a thing from me, said, I'm willing, Jameson. Let me lay my hand on you. It changed the way I speak to other people. It changed the way I share the gospel. I don't share it from a place of arrogance, like I'm great, 
or intelligence, like I know it all. I share it from a place that says, hey man, I see a leper. I know a leper when I see one. And he touched me. And he can do the same for you. And so we go back to the gospel. We go back to Jesus. We go back to what makes him appetizing to us. And, and once our heart is full with this awe of who Christ is and the gratefulness for his grace, we share that with others. So that grace is an essential component. And I just want to say you should never trust a chef that does not eat his own food. <laughs> last thing, the last way we buy up every opportunity for the gospel and for gospel conversation is this, by showing personal attention to each person. By showing personal attention to each person. You know, my wife gave me a rare compliment this week. Um, it's not that she doesn't compliment me often, she's just careful because compliments go to my head. Um, but she told me that when I'm talking to people, she can tell that I'm really listening. She can tell that I'm really listening, which is true. I really do my best when people are talking to me to give them personal attention, but you know, that wasn't, that wasn't always the case. For most of my life, I didn't listen to a single thing anybody said. I didn't care what you were talking about. My mind was somewhere else, off in la-la land, in fantasy, thinking about what I was gonna do later, thinking about you know, what was gonna fill me. And when I did listen to someone, I only really listened so that I would respond to what they were saying. I, I responded often so that I could punch holes in their argument or what they were saying or what problem they had with me. I would, I would listen so that I could respond to defend myself and I didn't listen so that I could understand the person. I didn't listen so that I could see someone's heart or what was hurting or, or what was going on. You know, and that, that, that really changed the day I realized that, that if a holy and perfect God would listen to me that he would hear my prayers, that he would understand my felt needs, that he would respond to me, not in a, not in a blanket statement, but at his, as his uniquely formed child, as an individual child, that I could actively listen to others. Like if God's gonna listen to me, this is God listening to me. How could I not listen to you? I understood that I could actively listen to others and listen to understand and not simply to reply. And so Paul's point in all of this is simple. Jesus never changes. The gospel never changes. But how we present this unchanging Jesus and this unchanging gospel to each person matters on an individual level. There is a way to talk about Jesus that will open Michaela's heart and Andrew's heart. Jeremy's heart and Brandon's heart, and it's not the same. It's not the same. Think about the way you parent your children, parents. How do you touch the heart of each of your child individually and uniquely? It's different. So we share the gospel with each person individually, giving them personal attention, using grace, and walking in wisdom. And so here's my plea for you today. Christians, buy up the stock. Buy up the stock. Make the best use of your days here in the city of Owasso, first by praying for God's kingdom to advance in your life and in the lives of those around you. Embrace gospel conversation by actively speaking about Jesus to individuals you come into contact with. Seasoning your speech with grace, walking in wisdom, using tact, knowing who you're talking to, 
and coming from a place that says, God, you have all the victory. Salvation is in your hands. I believe that you will open doors for the gospel if I am simply willing to pray and walk through them. And let your confidence be in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're so in awe of you. We're so in awe of you. Lord, none of us would be here this morning were it not for you first opening a door for the gospel, that we could see how wonderful you are and how sinful and broken we are. And that in light of that truth, in light of our deficiencies, in light of our sins, you chose to bring the wonder of who you are into our lives. Lord, I pray, help us. Lord, now that we've seen the wonder, and now that we know the wonder, and now that we can behold the wonder, Lord, help us to tell others about the wonder of who you are. Lord, help us to pray. Lord, help each of us individually in this moment to think about one person who needs the gospel one person who needs to know you in a true and deep way and to have salvation in Christ and help us to begin to pray for that person. Lord, right now, right now as we think of them. Lord, and I, and I ask you that as we pray, you would go and you would begin to open doors. Open doors for conversation. Open doors for meals. Open doors for connecting at work. Open doors for playdates with our children. Open doors for nights playing board games. Open the doors, Lord, that the gospel would pour out of us and into these people's lives. Lord, not because we're anything, but because you're everything and you're all powerful. Lord, we need grace and we need boldness. But more than anything else, if we're gonna have outward actions that glorify you, Help us to have an inner spiritual life that depends on you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.